You're listening to Leaving Treadmarks, an advanced student leadership podcast, part of the Servo Fred Laurier School Board. We do not go where the path may lead. Go instead where there is no path and leave a trail. Ralph Waldo Emerson. Hi, I'm Jennifer. I'm Emily. I'm Abigail. Hi, hi, my name is Catherine. Catherine obtained her DC in nursing from Vanier College and a bachelor degree in psychology from Trent University, Ontario. She began her nursing career in 1988 at the Montreal General and Catherine Booth Hospitals. In 2007, Catherine entered the field of cosmetic plastic surgery. She has always had a passion for humanitarian work and in a recent visit to Haiti, had the opportunity to help with the needs of that community. Caught in a political crisis facing Haiti that took over during her visit, Catherine and her team had to find a way to return home safely in the growing unrest that swept the country. Catherine, you are a nurse. What kind of nurse are you and where do you work? When I started nursing, I was in cardiovascular and thoracic surgery at the Montreal General Hospital. And then I spent 19 years in rehabilitation and infection control. Over the last 12 years or so, I've been in plastic surgery. So I work in a clinic where we do reconstruction after breast cancer and we do cosmetic treatments as well. Before we get into what happened in Haiti, we want to get to know you and why you do what you do. Why do I do what I do? Uh, since I was a child, I had a burning desire to go abroad and help others. And when I was 19 years old, I was trying to put that into action. And when I told my parents that I was going either to South America or Africa, <laughs> My father at the time said, maybe you should have some tools before you go off and try to save the world. At the time, I was doing a degree in psychology. And as much as we appreciate psychologists here in North America, in Canada, in third world countries like Africa or Haiti, it's not a priority for them. Uh, they're concerned about whether they have their next meal or whether they're going to be caught in, in, a, in a crisis of violence and their lives are, are in danger. So at that time, I decided to go into nursing. I finished my degree in psychology, then I went into nursing. And that little fire that was burning inside of me never died. And it took me about 35 years before I put into action my, my calling. Wow, that is very inspiring, your whole story about um, the humanitarian work and how you started, very inspiring. Yeah. So why are you a nurse? And has medicine or helping people always been an interest of yours? Yes. I grew up in a family where everyone was in a helping profession. My parents were both teachers. Uh, I, I, I'm in a family of teachers and, uh, and healthcare providers. So it was very important in, in when I was growing up to choose a field where I was going to be giving back to others. It was instilled in me. Uh, nursing, I felt, was a good choice because no matter where you go in the world, we need to either teach how to stay healthy or we need to be able to heal people who are not healthy. So it was a very good uh, a very good option for myself for what I wanted to ultimately do. What was high school like for you and how did you how did that role prepare you for what you do now? High school. Well I went to um, I went to two different high schools. I went to Vincent Massey Collegiate and then I went to St. Pius Tenth. And at that time we had Catholic religious instruction within the school system. And I feel that that was a very important role for me. I grew up in a family that was Catholic, going to church with my parents, and my parents very much 
lived their faith. But being surrounded by people who felt that God played a role in their lives and being taught about having faith and, and ultimately listening to that inner voice, it made a big, big, big difference to me. And I'm very grateful for my high school experience and that it gave that to me. Otherwise in school, I have to be honest, I hung around the gym. <laughs> I wasn't the big academic in the school. I was the jock. I, uh, I was involved in all the sports. Oh. <laughs> How did that prepare me? I guess it gave me a lot of uh, uh, strength and resilience, and, and I could keep up with the kids running around the compound and maybe <laughs> and playing, you know, floor hockey with them or whatnot. But uh, yeah, but I think that, that the faith it instilled in me, in me was the important um, takeaway from high school. Yeah, that's really great. I, it's really great how you started like as an athlete, like you said, and after it became such a academic and with all your works becoming a who you are today. And it's inspiring for like these young leaders who also like academics, but also like um, their sports. It's really inspiring to hear your story. So can you explain a little about your job and what eventually brought you to Haiti? Well, my job now, I work in plastic surgery. Mm -hmm. So fortunately, I'm in a practice that mixes um, medicine and aesthetics. But for a big part of my day, I'm spending time doing Botox injections or, or, mm -hmm. or pumping people's lips so that they look like Kim Kardashian. So it's not a very noble field in that way anyway, anymore. But most nurses, if they become nurses, it's not to work in aesthetics. It's because they want to help people. So by doing humanitarian work, it brings a balance into my life. I still have a patient relationship. I have some of the same patients that I've been following for the last 10 or 12 years. And it goes beyond just aesthetics. But at the same time, it was I, I felt I needed to be giving more. And, uh, and going to Haiti, being able to immerse myself in the community there, uh, help feed the children, uh, work in the clinic, diagnosing and, and treating, that really gave me, um, it really gave, brought a richness to my life. For sure. So what is humanitarian work talking about, Haiti and your experience? Humanitarian work is helping others. So we could do humanitarian work in our own backyards. We don't have to go to places like Haiti. Uh, we could see an elderly person walking down the street with their with their grocery bags and and help them here in in Montreal. Uh, we could we could do so much. We have a huge homeless population here that we could help. In Haiti, what drew me there was the incredible poverty. the The fact that they that they Many of them have one meal a day, and that's if they're fortunate to have that meal a day. Uh, they're, they're, they're starving. They don't have the immune systems that we have here because they are malnourished. Uh, they, their housing is, is limited. Many of them are, are, are living in what we wouldn't even put our cars in here. Um, and, and I think that's what the draw was for me, is seeing such a great need. Also another draw was, like a lot of Canadians, I was concerned that giving money to the Haitian cause was just lining the pockets of politicians, of corrupt politicians. Mm -hmm. And when I heard about the group I went with, Hope Rose, and heard that, the, that they do such good work and that every penny they make really does go into the Haitian village that, that they're, they're providing for, I thought, you know, this sounds like it's what I want to do and with the right group. And to be honest with you, the the, the I don't know how, how to even explain it. The depth of commitment that that group has astounds me. 
Uh, every single penny that they bring in for the organization goes to the Haitian people. They're feeding about 300 to 350 children a day who otherwise wouldn't have a meal. Then Meals on Wheels program for about 40 elderly people who otherwise wouldn't have a meal. In Haiti, they stopped paying their teachers. So the school's just closed. So on the compound, there's a school for 120 children, but they also provide the salaries, the books, uh, food for three schools in the mountains and a school in the village. These children would not have the opportunity of education like we do here. And this organization is allowing them to have that. And also, it'll pay for higher education for those children who aspire to have higher education be the leaders for their country. Yeah, I could only imagine when they asked you to be part of that journey with them. It's so amazing what this uh, organization did for them and not just the look of what they were doing, but really to give back to that community and that village. It's amazing. When you think about going to help people in different countries, what are some of the risks and, and challenges that you have to work through in order to prepare yourself? Anywhere we go in the world, even if it's not to do humanitarian work, has risk. You know, you travel to Europe right now with the with, with all of the unrest we have in the world when it comes to terrorism and whatnot. We have to be concerned and we have to make sure that, that we are aware of our surroundings. Going to a place like Haiti, um, the big concern is making sure I had the appropriate vaccinations uh, because there are health concerns there that we don't have here. They do not have running water. They don't have toilets. They use a hole in the ground. Uh, with the flooding, there's garbage everywhere. Uh, the, the chickens that walk around, they're eating you know, garbage off of the ground that has parasites. Uh, the mosquitoes they can yeah. carry malaria, they can, they can carry dengue fever. Uh, you get scratched on, on a piece of barbed wire or whatnot, you could get tetanus. So it's really to make sure you're going there with your eyes open and preparing yourself with appropriate vaccinations. Also, it was going there knowing where to go, where not to go, and making sure that when I left the compound, I was always accompanied. One of the reasons we ended up staying there longer was because it wasn't safe to leave the compound and go to the airport. There were barricades, there were roadblocks, they were demanding ransom from people who tried. So it's to have the have the forethought to say, I'm not even going to try in this situation. I'm going to wait until it's safe and not take the risk. So I think anywhere in, in anywhere you travel in the world right now, it's really to be aware of your surroundings, not take risks. Um, and just to realize that even at home, inherently, there are risks. You can't let that stop you either. You have to have a faith that you're being called to go somewhere and that at the end of the day, things are going to unfold the way they're meant to. Exactly. And I, it's really apparent that in Haiti, it's very, it's very different than how we live here. It's almost incomparable. So can you tell us a bit about who you met and specifically what you saw and what you did there? Uh, in the community I was helping in, it's, it's in the Grand Boave area of Haiti, which is about an hour and 15 minutes south of Port-au-Prince, in a small, small community called Petit Paradis. And in Petit Paradis, the people are very, very warm. I have to say, they were very warm, they were very welcoming. Hope Gross has been there for about 12 years. When it first established itself in Haiti, they were feeding children at the side of the highway. They didn't have a compound, they didn't have supplies like they do now. Um, now the community has become very familiar with, uh, with the Hope Grows volunteers. 
So they are welcoming. They're not afraid of us. They are yeah. happy to see us there. The um, What's wonderful is seeing the incredible hope and joy these mm -hmm. people have. Here in Canada, we have everything we can imagine ever needing. We may not have, have everything we want, but we actually have everything we need. Mm -hmm. But we have a lot of people here in Canada who don't have hope. Yeah. We have a lot of here uh, people here in Canada who are not happy, who are not joyful. Over there, they have close to nothing. And it's like the complete opposite. The complete opposite. Yeah. They have hope. They have joy. They are thankful. They are grateful that the sun rises in the morning, that they have that meal and the sun sets at the end of the day, and they have another day to look forward to. So that was a very a, a huge takeaway from for me is yeah. to realize how little it takes to be joyful and happy. Wow, that's really something good to take yeah. positively from that, really. So tell us when and how you got to Haiti. I went to Haiti on February 6th. A friend of mine had gone with this organization a couple of years ago, and at the time, because my youngest son was still in high school and it was during the spring break, I couldn't mm -hmm. go. I, I wanted to be with my son. And I said, next time, I will be there. Uh, and when she mentioned this to me in November, I didn't even think about it for, for two seconds. I just said, yes, I'm in, I'm going. So, uh, like I said, it's a long time com coming. It's been a burning desire in me to do this kind of work, and the opportunity presented itself. So we went on February 6th. Uh, our flight was, I mean, right from the from day one, it was kind of something was telling us that this may not go as smoothly as we had liked. Our flight was five hours delayed oh, wow. going to Haiti. We arrived in the dark. Oh. Haiti in the dark, it's dark. It's not like dark here. It's complete yeah. pitch blackness. Like no street lights. No or... street lights. Street lights, nothing. Um, we're driving through Port-au-Prince and we actually stopped at a grocery store. And in the middle of the street, and this was before the demonstration started, in the middle of the street were two police officers with their face covered, completely dressed in black with machine guns. And that was an eye-opener. And I thought, wow, yeah. this is a country that truly needs help. Mm -hmm. So um, that was the beginning. My first day there, my first patient was an 18-day-old baby who died the very same day. And wow. He had, he had a congenital malformation of the valves in his heart. If he had been here in Canada, that's something that probably would have been found on an yeah. ultrasound before he was even born. And that baby probably would have lived here. So that was a very big eye-opener as well. Yeah, especially on the first day, like, to see your patient go through yes. that. And knowing that it's... And yeah. seeing the parents go through that. Yeah seeing the parents go through that. So that was a, a big eye-opener. Oh, really? What sort of work were you doing there? We are doing all sorts of things. Um, we do have a clinic uh, that we were seeing about 100 patients a day, 100 to 100 patients, 120 patients a day. A lot of those patients are coming in with skin conditions. Uh, over here in Canada, I'm sure that when you guys were in elementary school, every now and then the letter went home to the parents saying that mm -hmm. one of the little kids in your class had lice. Yeah. Over there they had something called scabies, which is kind of like lice. It's, okay. um, it's a little mite that actually bores under the skin and lays eggs. And they don't have sanitation there. They don't have showers. So it spreads very, very easily. Yeah. So a lot of the children coming in did have this skin condition. A lot of... Um, 
we had people with urinary tract infections. They don't have running water. They have to go to a well, a common mm -hmm. well for the entire village. And that's the children, one of the, chil one of the first jobs that the children have is to go every morning and every afternoon to fill their bucket with water. And that was the water for their family, to drink, to wash their dishes, to wash their clothes. So they do limit the amount of water they drink just because it's not as available. Yeah. And it's a very hot climate, so they become de dehydrated and they end up with a lot of urinary tract infections. Um, you know, so most of our patients, those were the, um, the symptoms they were coming in and the illnesses that they were coming in. The little baby dying is a rarity. Mm. Um, it was a rarity and a very sad awakening. And there are accidents. Um, on my last night there, one of the boys, 19 years old, Peterson, who would accompany us if we left the compound, he had a motorcycle accident. And he's going to be fine. He has a broken nose and he hit his head and he had a bunch of lacerations, but we had to start an IV and put on a, a cervical collar on him. There were no ambulances with fuel. There were no taxis with fuel. We had to put him on the back of an ATV uh, and, and tie a sheet and tape him to the driver. Somebody sat behind him holding up the IV bag to transport him to a clinic where they couldn't do exercise, where they couldn't do x-rays, where they didn't have sutures to, to sew him up. They had to come back to the compound to get sutures from us. And the sad thing is if we were not supporting his medical care, he would have had no medical care. They don't have, they don't have Medicare there. They don't, yeah. you know, so it's, yeah, so it's anything from urinary tract infections to skin, skin infections to accident victims. Yeah, I mean, seeing that must put our lives in perspective and like it truly shows how lucky we are to be living the life that we do. And um, well, just to go to Haiti, what mindset do you think someone has to have and would you ever do it again? I would do it again in a heartbeat. Mm -hmm. uh, just waiting for them to reopen the, right now there are no flights. Flights are suspended until the end of April. Mm -hmm. I would definitely go again. I was with a group of eight nurses and we all would go again. What do you need to go to Haiti? First of all, you don't have to have a medical background. Uh, you have to have a willingness to be there. Yeah. And that's all. Uh, one of the things we were doing, you asked earlier what tasks we were doing. I spent a lot of time in the clinic because that's my background, but we also have a school there. And on in, during the week it's in French, on weekends it's in English. They just like to be able to speak with somebody who speaks English mm -hmm. correctly, yeah. uh, who doesn't have a Haitian accent. So even if it's sitting there and reading a storybook to somebody, you're, you're helping. Uh, so there's everything and anything under the sun that you could do to make a difference. Uh, we were building houses. Some of the girls in our group, some of the nurses, they were making cement blocks. Uh, do they make cement blocks here in Canada? No, but they were making cement blocks. So you do what you are being called to do. Yeah, no matter what it is, medical background or not, just to go see them and then to like, for your eyes to be open to what they have and how they, their spirits are so high with exactly. so little that they have. It's an amazing experience. Exactly. So thank you so much for talking with thank us. Thank you so I'm much. I'm really glad I got to learn about your yeah. story. I thank all of you for taking the time to, uh, to ask these questions and, and your interest. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
Uh, thank you for being here, and we hope we hope for you guys to have the best of luck. Well, thank you very much for having us here. Thank you, man. Thank you. Look for Leaving Fedmarks wherever you get the podcast. iTunes, Stitchers, wherever else. Advanced Student Leadership is a program of the Sir Wilfred Laurier School Board, and you can reach us through our website, asl.swlsb.ca, or email asl.swlsb.ca. See you next time. Yeah.